0: Time to travel
1: with Karin Key. Well, we've been traveling around Australia and the Lord Howe Island with Graham Howe the last few weeks. And I'm not going to be buying and scraping today because he's left the Lord Howe Island and he's off to Tasmania. Graham, good evening. Welcome back once again. Um, Another island tonight.
2: Yes. uh, Thanks, Karin. It's good to be back. Well, I mean, I went from an island to an island to an island because I flew from uh, Lord Howe Island. Stopped in Sydney uh, briefly without overnighting. In fact, flew straight into uh, Hobart, which is about a two-hour flight. The capital of Tasmania, which is sort of south-east or so of Melbourne, south of Sydney. I went to Tasmania a few years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask yes. you, you
1: weren't there that long ago. Why Why would you go back? I mean, it's a relatively small place, If you know, if you think about it. Yes. What was there to make you go back?
2: Well, I think it's, a lo- it's bigger than people realise in that a lot of it is wilderness space. Um, Last time I really went to Hobart and and its surrounds, and I wanted to look around the rest of the island. Uh, Since childhood, Tasmania's always had this kind of fascination for me. I think it kind of appeals to the wilderness in your imagination. It's a bit like Alaska. About half of the island, in fact, some, I think, 25,000 square kilometres, is declared wilderness or national park area, and I wanted to look at some of those famous parks like the Franklin Gordon Wild Rivers Park and Cradle Mountain, and just go exploring in the interior and it's actually about it's slightly smaller than Ireland so it's it's bigger than you than you think when you get there and also because the roads are through pretty rugged terrain it takes about twice or three times as long to get around. Whenever you look at one of their roads and you think, oh, it's just 100 kilometers, you have to actually factor in, you know, incredibly windy, precipitous roads that go from the lowlands to the highlands and and through these deep forest gorges. So it's a very wild and rugged country.
1: Now let before we get into the country, let's just start off in Hobart. Now that I think half of Tasmania's population actually live in Hobart. They so do. you know and is it an attractive city, is it a very crowded city? What is it like in Hobart?
2: Well, in fact, the Lonely Planet Guide readers rated Hobart the third most photogenic city in in the world last year, and it enjoys a wonderful waterfront um, setting um with a very real sort of working uh, waterfront with with not only yachting marinas it's a very sort of waterbound city you cross the uh, Tasman bridge from the airport which links the sort of two different shores of uh, or or settlements of of hobart and you come into the traditional the uh, the old heritage um area around uh, sullivan's cove which is all these Gorgeous sort of historic Georgian warehouses and buildings that really go back to the sort of early 1800s when the town was first settled. And of course Tasmania, which was formerly known as Van Diemen's Land, was uh, first settled as a as, as a as a convict settlement specifically. Um, so the, the early history is fascinating and, and sort of quite brutal in a way, I suppose. Uh, Hobart is well serviced by Qantas on the Hobart and Melbourne routes, and it takes under two hours to get from uh, Sydney to Uh, Hobart and also to the the north. The main town in the north is called Launceston. It's also well serviced by air links to mainland Australia. So it's easy to get to and a lot of people catch the spirit of Tasmania which is an overnight ferry service that runs from uh, Melbourne but I believe the seas are quite rough. I mean you're really far south there so (laughs) I decided (laughs) to simply fly. So it's about twice as far south as Cape Town in fact so if from Hobart you were to sail west you'd miss the foot of Africa completely and end up somewhere way down on the south coast of uh, Argentina and Chile.
1: Now, I know when you were on Lord Howe Island, they were quite specific about the number of guests that came along. I mean, they they weren't having hordes of tourists on Lord Howe Island. Are they quite open to tourists in Tasmania? (laughs) They don't mind how many of them pitch (laughs) up.
2: No, no, it's very open. Although it's a small but growing tourism numbers, uh, a lot of uh, domestic Australian tourists, they get there. But in fact, I ran into a number of South Africans who were enjoying, I think, the kind of great out Doors and and the rugged nature of uh, Tasmania. While I was there, one of the main tourist attractions, in fact, which has has really led a kind of boom in, in in tourism to Tasmania, is called Mona, which stands for the Museum of Old and New Art, and it's based at the Marilla Winery. And it's received since opening in January two thousand and eleven some seven hundred and fifty thousand. Tourists, which is more than the total population of Tasmania, oh, okay. which is a, around 500 or 600,000, I think. And it's one of the world's biggest privately owned uh, collections of very avant garde art. In fact, the the owner, David Walsh, who has made his fortunes gambling, this is a sort of real Australian story, and is a a whiz with numbers and has developed software to beat gambling systems the world over. He built it at a cost of 75 million Australian dollars, which is, you know, about 750 million South African rands, and to house his collection of worth over over a billion South African rands. And it's really amazing. He calls it a subversive adult Disney (laughs) land because it's set it's excavated into a sandstone cliffs mona and it's about an hour by ferry and even the ferry the mona ferry is decorated with uh, graffiti and works of art and it's about an hour up the dewent river which is a old sort of wine route and, and settlement part of hobart and it's excavated into this three or four stories underground into the side of a cliff face right on the river so it's all underground and it's really quite the most incredible I mean one one of the displays when you go in you actually hold with your two hands you hold this pulse and it picks up your pulse and the whole gallery actually all these naked light bulbs hanging there start pulsing to your individual heartbeat I mean, it's, oh, it's really a very high-tech, <laughs> very way out. It has some of Damien Hurst's and Sidney Nolan's, the biggest, uh, one of the biggest installations in the world of a rainbow snake um, depicting the sort of Aboriginal dream time or one of their origin myths. It's just mind-boggling. It, they also have the world's biggest water printer, which is this giant three-story high printer that prints words in water, um, and they fall down the cliff face. And it's all about the information flow and the barrage of information that, that we're faced with in, in the modern era. And so Mona is really worth going. You actually need a day to go out to this, this art gallery because the work is so fantastic. But it also has a lot of really interesting collections of Egyptian sarcophagi from antiquity of mummies, Egyptian mummies. Yes, it's right well so, across the board yeah, then. Mm. And set into an excavated into a cliff. I mean, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Where did you stay while you were there? Well... I think just about every old building in, in Hobart seems to tell a story, and I stayed right down on the waterfront where the first convict ships came ashore, and apparently in those days it was very, there's still some wonderful old pubs like the Drunken Admiral, um, and in those days it was really sort of a very bawdy area of brothels and boarding houses and bars. Um, and I stayed at the Henry Jones Art Hotel, which is one of the top luxury boutique hotels in Australia today, and it's set in the old IXL jam factory. Now, I don't know whether you remember in the sort of 60s, um, we used to have a lot of IXL jam in South Africa. I'm sure many of your listeners will remember these, these very colorful labels. It was the biggest jam factory in the Southern Hemisphere. And apparently a Captain Cook planted the first apples and cherries in Tasmania. In fact, Tasmania was known as the Apple Isle at one point. And it grew into this huge canning industry where apparently wagon after wagon would come in loaded with fruit and berries, Offload are on the piers in Hobart, and it would either go back to the UK via ship or be canned um, as jams. And they have an old saying. Apparently, the old Hobartians used to describe, if you if you say, you know, what sort of a day is it going to be in Hobart today? They'd smell the air, and they'd say, oh, it's an apple jam day, or it's a strawberry jam day, because they'd smell mm. that they would only be making strawberry jam. So the hotel is very atmospheric, in fact. And the bar is what you might call jam-packed at night. Oh.
1: You had to say that.
2: (laughs) So I enjoyed staying there. And then at at a later stage, I moved into the Old Wool Store Hotel, which is another very well-situated hotel um, with lovely self-catering apartments and great for families, very spacious. And it's set in one of the main Old Wool uh, sheds, complete with displays of fleeces on the Old Wool trade, which was uh, obviously another big trade in in Tasmania. And they had the bar, bar, (laughs) named after the sheep (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I did find the Tasmanians have a very quirky sense of humour. And both hotels are well worth staying at.
1: Now, one of the things that you mentioned to me, they have their own little credo there in Tasmania. Expect the unexpected.
2: Yes, you see this. It's actually a road sign because I think so much of the wildlife hops into the road. Um, They have another one scratched beneath the surface. And, you know, Tasmania is quite a quirky place. I mean, I went to TMAG, which is, I think, uh, one of the other top five tourist attractions. It stands at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery. And it reopened in March this year after a huge 30 million Australian dollar refurb. And it's actually Australia's second oldest museum, and it's set in an entire city block of some of the oldest buildings, including the Kismet K- K- Zeriat Store, which 1810 was built, and the old Bond Store, and it's where all the ships it's set on the water gates because Hobart is now built on a lot of reclaimed land. So the middle of the like Cape Town, so yeah. the middle of the city, in fact, was once right on the right on the sea, and it's amazing what they did was the museum curators and I did a tour with with one of them, actually asked the public. You know, what were their favorite items at the museum? Because they didn't want to build such a new high-tech museum without losing sight of... They have apparently a million objects there and can obviously only display, you know, 1% of them at any one time. And they decided to, to exhibit the exhibits which told the stories of Tasmania that move you. And that's the theme there. So there are wonderful exhibits on the tragic story of the now-extinct Tasmanian tiger, the thylacin. The Albatross Latitudes, um, which is because uh, Hobart is actually the uh, sort of stepping stone to the Antarctic, so the Australian Antarctic boat is based there and was in the harbour while I was there. And a lot of the famous explorers, including Amundsen, who won the race to the South Pole with Scott, he actually, when he came back, he spoke from the steps of the uh, General Post Office, which is this beautiful old sandstone buildings. It's a very elegant city with very grand civic buildings. Um, you can actually follow a polar trail through down downtown Hobart, and there are these lovely bronze statues of the early explorers and their huskies and uh, all of their equipment that they took down to the Antarctic. But TMAG is fantastic just to get back to the museum because apparently the favorite, everyone remembered this from childhood going back, you know, 50, 60 years, was that they'd always had a mummy underneath the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) So way down south in Tasmania, they've now built this sort of shrine to the and everyone else remembered the stuffed tiger that they saw next of all. So they put this great sort of jumble of objects and they kept the staircase but put it on as this grand old staircase. But you can't walk up it it's just part, of the, part of the exhibit. It's show. sort of a freestanding mm. bit of the staircase these days. So I was very amused to see that. And also the museum tells importantly the story of the clash between the early settlers and the aboriginal inhabitants who were completely decimated by disease by uh, literally a a genocide that occurred in the 1800s. And it's very interesting to see that Tasmania is very open in the telling of this story with um, an entire floor called... Parawa, which means go away, go away, which is what they greeted the white settlers who arrived and actually thought they were ghosts. They thought they were spirits from the underworld. And so it tells this fascinating story um, there. So TMAG is another you could sp- easily spend a day there and it's one of the main tourist attractions.
1: But it sounds like you need at least a week. I mean, how long were you in Tasmania? Because I mean, Hobart itself, I don't think, how, how, how did you get to leave this place? <laughs> I mean, well, there's so much to do and I did, see there. And I,
2: I used Hobart as a base, so I'd go off and spend, oh, see. do okay. a few day trips or spend some time up the east coast or down the south so coast. So it's quite easy to and do then, that from then Hobart come, then. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and and apart from the museum side of it, it's also a great food and wine city. So well, you know, obviously, Tasmania I was not expecting <laughs> you to bypass that. Five so five wine routes. Well, before um, we get to
1: the wine, what did you eat? You always eat weird stuff. Did you eat weird stuff in Tasmania? Well, I, I
2: did a, a, a walking tour called Gourmania Food Tours um, with a chef, a pastry chef, Mary McNeil, who runs these walkabouts, and you pop into about a dozen delis and cafes and pubs. And salmon producers Tassel, one of the world's biggest um, salmon farms. And so I tasted some really interesting food. I mean, uh, they're famous for their seafood, for their oysters and mussels and, and salmon. And also they have, which is very affordable if you're traveling on the South African round, a whole range of floating fish and chip shops in the docks. And they actually literally are little floating boats, and you buy the wonderful fish like blue-eyed Travella is one of their local fish. It's a cod, basically. And uh, you can also taste at Verst House Smokehouse on the Gourmania Food Tour, which is one of Hobart's most famous delis, or, or providors as they call them, their saltbush lamb. A few dishes you really would have enjoyed, Karen, they, they they sell fresh rabbit, their smoked emu. Really, um, uh, Flinders Island, which is one of the islands off of Tasmania, is uh, uh, wallaby marinated in bush dust. Really? Okay. Now I would have left all of that up dishes. to you, Graham. Um, thank you so much for being so
1: generous. But, but, no, but thank more close
2: to home, one could have squid from Storm Bay, which is a local They'll squid have. or calamari, which was very okay. nice, and venison sausage from Dewtown. In fact, one of the oldest licensed pubs in Australia, the Brunswick Hotel, which any visitor to Hobart should go to. Founded in 1831, they specialise in wattle seed braised wallaby Um. Now, you could have had that
1: too, thank you. Now, one of the other things I know you are absolutely crazy about is your whiskey. And uh, you did some whiskey tasting there.
2: I did, because there are nine Australian whiskies made on the island. So they have nine different distilleries. Well, I think with its sort of convict history, brewing moonshine and spirits is an old tradition. But in fact, it was banned around 1900 by a prohibitionist (laughs) governor, Sir John Franklin. For the betterment of the fledgling colony, and apparently his wife was a keen teetotaler. Apparently, whiskey had not been made in over 150 years, when in the 1990s, a man called Bill Locke opened a distillery in downtown Hobart. And in fact, he owns a pub there where you can try all of his uh, whiskies, vodkas. Um, he makes a whole range of spirits. And you can do a tasting there, in fact. And it's set in one of Hobart's old sandstone heritage buildings. And in fact, today, Tasmanian whiskey has won awards all over the world. Uh, Larks is, is particularly good. And it's quite funny because the barley they used to make the whiskey is now named after the governor who banned... Of whiskey <laughs> in the in the 1800s because you you have peat there so they have they, they're able to to smoke the, uh, the the barley the water is among the purest on the planet from Tasmania and they also make handcrafted gins and apple brandy Vodka from the wild pepper berries. And it's not just at Lark's Distillery, but as I say, there we went to Redlands, Nant. There are about nine other distilleries on the island. So you can literally do a, a whiskey tour as well, if you like, of Tasmania.
1: Very small island. And you mentioned that there were wine routes, which you'll get to shortly. But there, there's whiskey. now. Apparently there were breweries. You visited some breweries. They've got the oldest brewery in Australia in Tasmania. Is that right?
2: The two, Cascade Brewery. I mean, it was founded in 1832. It's been doing it for a while. Guess who bought it this year? South African Breweries Miller. So um, the locals' (laughs) noses were a bit out of joint when I swanned in and said, Oh, "Oh, look, it's sort of, uh, it's like like, just like home from home here. Cascade Brewery is set in this gorgeous old gothic building um, they offer beer and food tastings and tours in fact while you're in the area it's also worth nearby to the cascades brewery is the cascades female factory now this isn't a factory where they make females but yeah, i was just a, a,
1: wondering about that though uh,
2: a, and it's a unesco world heritage site and it was part of the port arthur historic site on the east coast which was the main penal settlement and it's one of 11 convict sites around tasmania that are protected under unesco world heritage listings for the Seventy thousand convicts transported to Van Diemen's Land in the first half of the nineteenth century. It's rated one of TripAdvisor's top ten things to do in Australia. Is to take a tour around this factory where mostly female convicts uh, worked, you know, producing. A range of goods needed um, for the new colony of Australia. And of course, the Cadbury was, Chocolate Factory. Say, you
1: didn't, by any chance, bump into <laughs> Willy Wonka while you were there. I did didn't
2: you? go to the, the, the Cadbury Chocolate Factory, but in fact, one of the biggest chocolate factories in the world is also based there.
1: Now, you mentioned using Hobart as a base, and you said you can do things from there. So, what sort of interesting day trips can you actually do from Hobart? I mean, what is there that's close enough to pop in and out of Hobart to go and do?
2: There's uh, the uh, Coal Valley, which is about an hour out of uh, Hobart and half has something like a dozen wineries and winery restaurants small boutique producers Obviously. also one of the cutest i think heritage towns called richmond everything seems the oldest or the the biggest or the best in tasmania and they they do love their superlatives and richmond village has i think the oldest a stone bridge and the oldest sandstone jail in australia let alone tasmania and it's full of little boutique guest houses kind of reminded me a little of front but it also has a wonderful uh, cheesery called wicked cheeses and i did another great tasting if you do end up in richmond julie crane runs the tasting house where you can taste all nine of uh, Tasmania's whiskies, um, and I did that right at the end of my tour of the <laughs> coal valley, as as you can imagine. But I also went to a wonderful little winery called Puddle Duck, uh, where they have fifty ducks who actually adopted the wineries built around a lake and so this apparently one lonely duck walked in was injured one day and they nursed it back to good health and it ended up in the family's bath and sort of sits and watches TV and his name is Gregory Peck. (laughs) 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 But all of the ducks had such cute names and they also have a range of corgis and of course all the ducks end up on the wine range and there's also a fabulous one of the top restaurants I ate at in Tasmania called Meadowbank at a wine there, which has a museum of, uh, which tells the history of Tasmanian wine, which again goes back to, I think, the first vines planted by either Captain Cook or Captain Bly of the Bounty fame.
1: I like that at the same place, I think, with the ducks, you were telling me about the corgis that were named after Faulty Towers. Yes, they were. What is it, all the characters uh, in Fawlty Basil, Towers? Yes, oh, <laughs>
2: absolutely. A, you know, after a few glasses of wine, everyone <laughs> has great fun there. But in fact, you don't really have to, if you're there on a Saturday, the Salamanca market is one of the best uh, markets probably in the world and runs for almost, uh, probably at least half a kilometre through Salamanca Place which is where the old customs houses are in downtown Hobart. A lot of the apple farmers come in and sell fresh, tree-ripened fresh-picked apples and a lot of them are old heirloom brands of apples as well as pears and you can try, in some of the pubs there, you can try some wonderful uh, beers and if it's a cold day they make a famous very strong ale called the Willy Warmer which is very refreshing and they say it's a beer that reaches the parts no other beer does <laughs>
1: oh well there you go but listen we've only actually stayed in hobart here now we the, i mean you didn't just go to hobart did you i mean you went out of hobart as well yes i did yes uh, i did we, other we day trips actually yes. don't have time right now would you mind coming back oh i'd love to great well we hopefully next week we can carry on with this tasmania i mean there's a, you didn't think i didn't think there was going to be quite that much to talk about in a little tiny island yes but apparently there's a whole lot
2: yes you need at least two weeks there I okay
1: think. all right well we'll see you next week and we're going what what are we going to see? Bruni Island, um, some place I can't say, and the dreaded penal settlement of Port Arthur. What was yes. that a place called? Fre- Fre- is it Fresnay? Fresnay. Fresnay. And they pronounce, they spell it like that.
2: Yes, there are a lot of French names from the early French. Because we've got Fresnay
1: in Cape Town, and it does yes. not look like that. No, that's true. Great. Okay. well, we'll see you next week and we'll continue with these other places outside of Hobart. Thank you so much for
2: joining us. Thanks, Cora. It's been fun to be here.
1: I was chatting there with Graham Howe and he attended the ATE 2013 as a guest of Qantas Tourism Australia and Tourism New South Wales. And to find out more about new tourist attractions and destinations across Australia and in Tasmania, there's a couple of websites. There's www.australia.com, there's Qantas.com and discovertasmania.com.
3: Listen up
4: for Shop Shop Children's Programme on SAFM with Leon Fisser at 10 minutes to 2,
0: Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Shop Shop, it's shop, shop, From the far road
3: and down to the city. It's shop, shop it's Shop, shop From the taxi... Hey, what's up, y'all? My name is Tevin Campbell, and right now, you're listening to SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader.
0: Time to travel with Car and Key.
1: Well, coming up from the 9th to the 11th of August, it's time for life just to go a little slower with the Robertson Slow Festival. It happens every year and it's just the most fantastic, I would think, almost an introduction to the start of the summer months coming up. And we just need a little bit of a rest before the rest of the year and we get our annual Christmas break. but. Let's find out what's happening this year from Elizma Spangenberger. She's the manager of the Robertson Wine Valley. Lisma. welcome back to the show. Last week we were talking about the winelands in Gauteng. Now we're back down in Robertson for the Robertson Slow.
4: That's correct, yes. We're almost the same as the vines. We need to rest before the full-on yes. summer starts again. <laughs> so just this is the most fabulous
1: festival, annual festival. Tell us what's happening this year.
4: Goodness. Um, loads, actually. Um, as people have come to know the, the Robertson Slow, um, dining is just like the first order of the day. So please come hungry. There is like anything from four, five, and six course menus to fill your days. And then also, there's activities. Two of our popular activities are backed by popular demand. How to make your own pasta and gnocchi, um, so that's very, going to be very, very interesting. There's boat cruises during the day, um, and obviously that will be weather permitted, but hopefully Hopefully, we'll get a few sunshine hours. And then on the Sunday, obviously, um, one of the highlights will be the regional food market that takes place at the Clip Drift Farm and has come almost like to be the highlight for everyone to just end off the weekend there.
1: It's not just all about the food, though, in case people think they're just going to come up there and expand their waistline. They can also be (laughs) quite adventurous. There's lots of other fun outdoor activities happening
4: as well. Yes, there are four by four routes. um, And then there's also a guided field trip um, where people will take you out in an open vehicle to go and see then there's um, uh, a, a bit of more educational side of things as well, with the winemaker taking you through the, vi- um, the vineyard to really show you the whole process from vine to bottle, and then you end off with a nice dinner in the cellar so uh, to just enjoy the product. So, no, there's really loads and loads to do um, when it comes to activities, um, to eating, and uh, there's... Live or um, interactive Poitiers course demonstrations. They're just like everything you can basically think of.
1: Are you still talking food? I'm trying to make people think they can come up and be, <laughs> and be adventurous. You can go on. There's oh, it's a, there's
4: winter. A, a, I know, <laughs> but. It is adventurous enough in the winter. <laughs> I
1: know, but there's also a mountain bike challenge. And then one of my favorite things is you have also have again this year is cruising on the Breda River. I
4: love that. Yes, and what's great is that there's actually more than one option. So you can either go for the, um, uh, again, the food, sorry, Karen. Yes, I- but there's food called. Um, theme to, to have like a full plate of food or you can just take the boat cruise um, or you can actually add a, um, a picnic as well. And yes, you are right. For the first time this year, actually, we have the Java Mountain Bike Challenge, which is going to be quite amazing. And there's anything from like a family route to a real, real daunting one um, that I won't never attend. <laughs>
1: the nice thing about the Robertson slow though, Elizabeth, is that when you some of the dinners and the the wine tastings are actually in the homes of the winemaking families of the area it makes it just so much more intimate uh, as a festival
4: yes it has actually um, this year is already the seventh year and um, last week I went through the documents um, where where we really communicated how this festival will start to the members and how it was portrayed to literally tell people uh, tell the wineries you must host something that people won't be able to experience on any other weekend on your farm so the people really open up their doors they take you into their homes they take you into like a cellar where no one will really come during the week or um, during any other weekend and make you see or let you see really what the farm is about get to know the family, get to know all those family secret recipes, get to know um, the, the history of the farms and how it get, came about. The valley is really rich in history. If you can um, think back of a few hundred years, there was, there was actually ostrich country. So there are really rich histories, and with stud farms and all that, it's really to come and enjoy and see what the valley was about 100 years ago and what it is about still today.
1: Now, obviously, if you can't just pitch up for these events. You have to book, and I think the closing date for the events... Be- it's Wednesday the 7th of August, is that correct?
4: That's correct, yes. Um, so people really do need to book. They've already started to fill up quite quickly. So um, we do recommend that people go onto the website and download the entire program, or otherwise we, uh, they can just contact us to email them a copy.
1: Okay, because these are, as you say, they're, they're very specialized events, and you know, obviously the numbers are going to be limited, so they can't just take everybody who arrives. You have to pre-book
4: all of this. Yes, definitely. We're, because we're trying to have like, an intimate event um, That's really you feel like you are caring with the people of the valley. We can't really allow too, too many people at one event. So it's literally sometimes um, exclusive down to like six people and sometimes 12 people, uh, at most about 20 people. Unlike
1: your other festivals that you have there, Elizma, this isn't just hundreds and hundreds of people all pitching up with no bookings available. This is a more intimate, smaller festival, but very different
4: Yes, definitely. And I think it's very important for us as a valley to show both sides of what we can do. Yes, we can organize big and world-class events, but this is world-class in a whole another sense. Um, And to really just to see this is quality, not that the other ones aren't quality, but this is real um, exclusive one-on-one time that you spend with the people on the farm.
1: Is this a family event?
4: I always say you know your children. Um, if you have like a type of kitty that, that will, can't really sit still, maybe not. Um, really have a look at the descriptions of the events, but some of them are fantastic, especially like those where you can go for a 4x4 four four route in the fells and uh, with like real rooster cook and all those. Obviously that is family friendly and the kids will really enjoy that. But then some of them are actually um, like taste things out of uh, real crystal glasses. So I don't think that will be a real kiddie-friendly uh, event, unfortunately.
1: You know, um, you don't want to have a miserable weekend yourself with an unhappy child. So. That's
4: the thing. So um, uh, we, we usually uh, tell people um, firstly you know your child and otherwise if you do um, just want to check with a the farm, then please do. And then you know at least that you're, you're going to be um, have a relaxed weekend. But not that we didn't have um, kids before at the our Noki and Pasta events and they really enjoyed it. So uh, like I say, it comes down to the personality of the children.
1: And bookings, Elizabeth, where do they do that?
4: Bookings, for any queries, they can actually contact us at the office, but when it comes to the bookings and payment for the activities, because people actually now um, organize their own itineraries, they need to book and pay with the farms themselves.
1: And that they would find all that information on the robertsonslow.com website?
4: That's correct. They can just download the program under the program link and then basically all the descriptions of each event with the contact details, the pricings and everything is um, is situated
1: there. So it's relatively simple. So just go to robertsonslow.com You'll find the program. You'll find out how to book. You can do everything there but just remember if you want to go to any of those events you have to do it before the 7th of August otherwise the booking will be closed and you'll have to wait until next year and I'm sure you don't want to do that. Good luck <laughs> with, with all of what's coming up and good luck for August. Busy, busy time as I said but As usual, lots and lots of things happening in Robertson. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us this evening.
4: Thank you so much. And we'll probably speak again in October.
1: I'm sure we will. (laughs) Elizabeth Spangenberg is the manager of the Robertson Wine Valley. And if you'd like to find out more about Robertson Slow, that's coming up from the 9th to the 11th of August. Have a look at the website. It's www.robertsonslow.com. And if you want to book for any of the events, just remember the booking closes on the 7th of August so if you want to go this year hurry up and go and book because they're filling up fast.
0: Time to travel with Car and Key.
1: Well, built in 1907, Satya Graha House is revered as the place where the late Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi conceptualized and evolved his philosophy of passive resistance. Well, the house has been refurbished and it now operates as a living museum and a guest house. And I'm joined this evening by Didier Bayere, he's the director of the Gandhi House. Didier, good evening. Welcome to the
3: show. Karen. Thank you for having me this evening. Wonderful place to work. Indeed, this is a wonderful place and an exceptional place to have in our country. This house, today known as Satyagraha House, 100 years ago, Mohandas Gandhi lived in this house in Johannesburg. Today, Satyagraha is both a museum and a guest house. A unique way to immerse yourself in in the privacy of a man, and the history of a country.
1: Explain to the listeners what that actually means, did he? Satyagraha, it actually, it actually relates to the whole passive resistance movement.
3: Yes, it relates to the whole passive resistance movement. Uh, in the beginning, Mohandas Gandhi, known as Mahatma Gandhi, started the passive resistance as a Satyagraha movement. Now, Satyagraha is a word that's in Sanskrit, uh, made of two roots. Satya, which means the truth and grahi which means force or power this is due to the philosophy or was using which was called the force or the power of truth and this this movement started first as such a movement and it's only later on that it was developed as a passive resistance movement
1: so he, he lived in South Africa for 21 years, but two of those years he lived in this actual house, in this particular house.
3: Gandhi lived a total of 21 years in South Africa and in different provinces as well. Talking about Johannes Beck, where he developed the passive resistance, he didn't only live at the satyagraha house, he lives also in different places. But today, today Satyagra house is just so important. In Johannesburg and in the whole country, because of the concept and the philosophy that was actually developed in this specific house. Uh, during this time, uh, mainly 1908 and 1909, deepened the philosophy of passive resistance. And it's also during the period spent in this house that there were a lot of demonstrations, including one of the main where. Everybody, all the non-white, had to burn their passes in one of the big ports there in Newtown back at the time. You see, this place remained, it's so significant, and today, this specific house where Mohandas Gandhi slept and developed the passive resistance is called Satyagraha House. The visitors have the opportunity to go to the Gandhi loft, though the house had Bedrooms at the time. It was built by Gandhi's best friend, known as Hermann Kalamba, who was the uh, German architect. But Gandhi didn't sleep in any of these bedrooms. He merely spent three to four hours of sleep. Most of this time he spent meditating, praying and fasting, writing and reading. And it's during this time that he received the inspiration about the passive resistance.
1: Now Didier, the, the wonderful thing now is that you have this house has been refurbished and it's open to the public and people can actually come and stay there. Yes.
3: Uh, The place has been uh, refurbished and uh, open to the public. Like I said, it consists of a museum and a guest house. The museum is open to the public. And uh, Karen, if you allow me, I would also talk about how important Satyagraha is contributing towards becoming a tourist destination, not only to international, but also to local people to all South Africans, or the residents of the country, the museum is free to access this museum. Now, the most important thing also to know about this museum is that this museum is dedicated to Gandhi and Kalamba for their life in South Africa. And uh, yeah, we, they achieved a lot out of the country as well, but this focused on the time they spent and the, their great achievement and contribution in the country. All the residents of South Africa, of Johannesburg, of Hauteng, can actually benefit and profit from this museum free of charge. Because uh, a lot of people, what we see is that it seems like international people seem to know more about Satyagraha House and taking more benefit than. Uh, The local themselves. So the name of Gandhi is known worldwide today. But people, from the time you talk about Gandhi, they see the achievement in India, which is great. But they forget very few people. They actually know that the origin of the great achievement that they accomplished in India was actually uh, started in South Africa. It had its roots here in South Africa. Uh, He had his training or the inspiration, his transformation, leaving his status, because he arrived in South Africa as a lawyer, as an attorney, leaving his, his status of attorney, becoming a simple man wearing a cotton, white linen, which we call Indian caddy, which he was already making himself. and all the transformation was actually developed here in South Africa. And he only took the philosophy, the concept, and uh, what he was already rooted in from South Africa back to India to go and become the side of the Indian nation, to give them the, the independence. But very few people actually are aware of this achievement. Very few people are aware of this important place. Where Gandhi spent most of uh, his youth age, and we only look at him already as, as a grown up and old man.
1: If people are coming to Suchigar House, didier, as we mentioned, they can stay over there. But they can also come. You have yoga and meditation classes, and you don't have to be staying there to do that. Can you just come along and, and actually do that from if you're just coming in for the day?
3: Yes. yes. As a museum, we open to everybody. The museum is open from 10 in the morning until 5 p.m. The whole property, the whole establishment operate according to certain philosophy, which is, of course, the philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. And uh, we do provide activities such as initiation to yoga and meditation, which guests or visitors can participate and experience. You don't have to stay at House for you to experience this. There's not only meditation and yoga. There is also the meals, for example. All the meals are strictly, strictly vegetarian. Uh, it's something to experience because Gandhi himself was a vegetarian as well. From the time you're walking into the property, you are embraced by the spirit spirit of serenity, spirit of, of peace, calm, and tranquility. Uh, it's a place to restore and revive your soul and your spirit. Didier, it sounds
1: absolutely wonderful. I'm going to give out the contact details, but I have to thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Thank you very much, Karen, for having me. Adia Bayeri is the director of the Gandhi House, known as Satyagraha House in Johannesburg. And if you'd like to find out more, you can take a look at the website. It's It's www.satyagraha.com or you can call them on 011-485-5928. And the good news is that they're offering local visitors a half-price special until the end of this month. So if you're keen to spend the night at Satya Graha House, there's a 50% discount for you, being a local South African, but just until the end of July, which doesn't leave you much time to book. You can call them on 011-485-5928. 011-485-5928.
3: Time
0: to travel with and Key.
1: I'm joined this evening by Andy Lee. He is the Food and Beverage Manager at the Hilton Hotel Cape Town City Centre. He started out at the Hilton Hotel here in Cape Town as the Executive Chef. He's still the Executive Chef, but he's now been promoted to take on some further responsibility. So he's the Executive Chef and the Food and Beverage Manager. And he's got lots of brand new fabulous ideas on how to
0: take his team forward. Andy, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a new challenge and an exciting one. I think primarily it's the coming together of two forces I want to say. Often we, we've noticed in the past and traditionally in the hospitality industry that restaurant waiting staff and kitchen team members have never really got on in a lot of situations. So that's really my focus is to change all that. I think I want to see a lot more chefs talking to customers, waiting team with a lot more food knowledge, and just really one team. At the end of the day, everybody, irrespective of what color shirt or jacket they wear, is there to serve the guests. And I think that's what is most important. One of the most important things we often talk about when it comes to
1: tourism and hospitality is the service. And South Africa for a long time has had a bit of a dodgy reputation when it comes to service. But over the last few years, speaking to people who've traveled overseas, we seem to be picking up and the service levels in this country seem to be getting a lot better. And the one thing I did pick up looking at some information about your position here and your promotion is the fact that the word team comes out a lot. And and this seems to be the way that you're going
0: now. I think that's what's very important. At the end of the day, it's creating one goal, one vision and everybody wanting to strive towards the same thing and for for me and for us as a team that's what we're about is we want our guests to have a truly enjoyable experience and for us whatever we do we do it with the guest in mind and that's really what we're striving for
1: over the years Andy, you've been in the business for what about 27 years now spent 10 years working under three michelin star chefs so you've had quite a career so far and where do you see all of that leading to now
0: for me, it's it's been an absolutely amazing journey, and it sounds sort of a little cliché, but it really is time to sort of give a little bit back. And, you know, you, you mentioned that South Africa has come on in leaps and bounds. I think it used to be in the olden days, whereas if you wanted to be a chef, you had to go overseas. But now with the quality of ingredients, the quality of chefs, and the whole foodie movement that is happening... People are a lot more knowledgeable. I think DSTV and all those glamorous chefs have got a lot to do with it and all the travel programs such as yours. It sort of brings it a lot more local and it encourages people to try new things and to do more. I think what we sort of strive for now is we're looking at locally sourced, busy with a new menu. There's some organic, locally grown organic items on that menu. Sustainability is a big thing. Again, with the cliche, I'm um, one a father, two a chef. So, yes, I want the environment to be around for generations to come. But as a chef, I want the best quality ingredients I can get. How has, have the food
1: offerings changed over the years? I mean, you're looking at, you said you're developing new menus now. What sort of things are people going for as opposed to when you started? It must be very different.
0: I started my career in Michelin-star restaurants and it was sort of the Nouvelle Cuisine era where a lot of people paid a lot of money for a pretty picture on a plate and then stopped off at a fast food joint on the way home to actually eat supper. I think those days have somewhat gone. People still want food presented artistically and pleasantly, but at the end of the day, I think taste will always be the most important. You see, where we've come now is, and this is, I think, where the quality of training and your apprenticeship thing which actually we've just started here we've just in we started a three-year chef apprenticeship program and we've taken on two local people that are now going to go through a three-year training program with us but there's no new food so that's why in some circumstances you get people trying to make purple carrots and blue green beans but it's the taste, it's the flavor. And so this is where the ability of the chef comes in. Because there is no food, it's how it's prepared. And when you get quality, phenomenally tasting local ingredients, the chef's job, sounds very simple, but is actually quite difficult, is to not mess it up. You know, I was fortunate to work for a three Michelin star chef for quite a number of years. And he always used to say to me, don't take a lemon and try and make it look and taste like an orange. Rather, if that's the end result you're looking for, then go out and buy the best orange you can afford and don't mess it up.
1: You mentioned uh, taking on a chef apprentice here. Talk to me a little bit about food as a career because there's a number of schools that have opened up in South Africa, chef schools. Would you recommend this as a career for a young person who's interested in cooking, interested in food, interested in developing menus, recipes, that sort of thing? Would you reckon this is a a worthwhile career, something that you've really, really enjoyed over the years because you've done it for long enough?
0: For me, in my long, I don't want to say too long because it makes me sound too old. But it, through the 27 odd years that it has been, I still, in all honesty, feel that I'm paid to do my hobby. And I think that has what has made me enjoy all those years. If you don't have passion, and I think with it's, it's with anything, and I and I spoke to some students a while ago that were graduating. And it's like I said to them, you know, often if you think back to your school days, and let's face it, we were there because we had to, not necessarily because we wanted to go to school. But the subjects you did well in were often because of the subject matter, the people in your class, and ultimately the teacher that you had. Because you could relate to them and that's what fueled that inspiration and, and, and inspired you and gave you so much passion for the, whatever subject it was. And that really is the same with cooking. For me, the beauty of cooking is you get to eat the end product. How important is the food and beverage side when it
1: comes to a hotel like the Hilton Cape Town City Centre where you have conferences, you have people just coming on holiday, you have quite a different array of guests. How important is the food and
0: beverage side of a hotel like this? For me, given my position, I always say it's the most important. Look, at the end of the day, a hotel provides bedrooms. That's what hotels do. But there's always so much more. It's, I don't want to say a one-stop shop, but people coming here looking for a complete solution. We've got a phenomenal hotel with phenomenal rooms, phenomenal decor, and the food and beverage offering needs to match the rest of the hotel. There should be no reason why guests have to go outside of the hotel apart from sightseeing. Talk to me about the restaurants, because there's more than one here. Yeah, we have Bistro 126, which is our all-day dining restaurant downstairs. And that, we serve Mediterranean influence. I love the Mediterranean. I love the style of food and the whole family way of eating together. Then we have Mezban, our North Indian restaurant, where, and I must say, hats off to the team in their They really do focus on traditional, authentic, spiced, modern twist on classical Indian dishes. And when I walk through the foyer of the hotel and I can smell them toasting spices, it truly is a a, a wonderful aroma. And then we have Signal Hill, which is our bar, lounge and terrace. It's situated upstairs by our pool deck. And there's wonderful views of Signal Hill, not just a funny name. But there, cocktails, snacks, really light, entertaining groups of friends. We serve shisha pipes there. And that's just a great meeting place. You have to see
1: Andy's face when he talks about food. He was telling me before we started doing this interview that he's developed on his new menu something called a pecan pie cheesecake. And you have to see his face. He just beams when he talks about food. I was going to ask him what inspires him, but I
0: think it's the food itself. Yeah, very much. I mean, you you mentioned one of the new desserts. And for me, it's always a toss up whenever I go anywhere. I don't eat many desserts, but I love cheesecake and I love pecan pie. And we were chatting in the kitchen, actually. And I was asking the team, what's their favorite pudding? So then we, we were chatting about my two. And then we said, well, hang on a minute. Why don't we put them together? So everybody kind of gathers around. There's flour and cream cheese and eggs all over the show. But we actually made a pecan pie baked cheesecake. So we're using pecan pie, so the pastry with the toasted nuts, as the base of the cheesecake. Then we still make the traditional New York-style baked cheesecake. And then we make the syrup with the toasted pecan nuts inside and pour that over the top of the cheesecake. So it's quite decadent. And as I say, for me, when I eat cheesecake... I like the New York-style sensation where the tea sp- I always eat with a teaspoon because it makes it last longer. The cheesecake sticks to the roof of the mouth. I think that's a true testament to a good cheesecake. So we, we've just combined the two and it's just a great dessert and it's now my new favourite dessert. I only order one dessert. Inspiration for you? Is it just the food or what else inspires you? I'm amazed at how much inspiration I get from the team as well. And understand it's not all just me i mean it very much is a team effort and we we've worked hard to create this team environment and everybody has their input everybody has their favorites we've started doing now a local as lecker dish just that we are trying to highlight local dishes all the different cultures in and around cape town and in south africa and obviously, with the diversity of the team we have, there's quite a bit of competition between the guys now, where they have taken in turns to create their own localis lekker dish every evening, and there's very much a lot of scoring going on. Can I say as to who can sell the most localis lekker dishes? But again, that comes back to with with the team and. I don't just want traditional waitrons talking to guests. This is where the chefs... So what you're finding now is not only are they creating their localist like a dish, but because it's theirs and they're taking ownership of it and they're excited about it, they're actually going and selling it to the guests. They'll go to the guests, the chefs themselves and explain the dish.
1: Looking at uh, where we've come from, as um, we mentioned at the beginning, that our service has not been that great. Our food has always been fabulous here, but we're now going more for locally produced, more sustainable way of, of eating
0: here. Um, how do we fare internationally, do you think? Do you think we're right up there with the best? I think we're very close, I'm, I must say. We've mentioned sustainability and a big thing, and I think that that's just a global global concern all around. I think... What sets South Africa, in all honesty, aside is how hospitable and it's, it's inbred within the communities, just how welcoming and friendly we are. Yeah, sure, we make mistakes. But, you know, I've been to some of the best restaurants in the world where they make mistakes. For me, a mistake is only a mistake if, one, you don't learn from it. And two, you don't make it right we've got a very big philosophy in hilton where yeah we we're, we're human and we of sometimes we make we can make a mistake but i think also from a guest perspective is guests are also a little understanding and are human as well but it's what you do that makes the difference
1: well it sounds like we're on a real good path here and one of the things that did come out of the the 2010 Soccer World Cup was everybody that came over here to South Africa was commenting on how hospitable we were and how everybody smiles all the time and trust me you come and eat Andy's food you're going to not stop smiling I really suggest you pop in it's Hilton Cape Town City Centre in the heart of Cape Town and uh, Andy Lee and his team will certainly give you something really big to smile about if you'd like to call them you can do so on 02 21 Oh two one four eight one three seven double zero. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with the Law Report when Attorney Marlon Chevalier will be joining us once again to talk about rental property law. That's the Law Report on Monday the 29th of July. If you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Travel on SAFM.